Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 26th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to present 2C line part 18, or explaining 2C line part 18, the non-white races in the Bible, part 2. There'll be um, one more installment of, of, of um, this series. That'll be next week. That'll be the non-white races in eschatology, in end times prophecy. I want to say a couple of words about judgment before I begin tonight, that this is kind of um, a, a topic that's come up today and yesterday, and I should probably say a few words about it for the edification of some people that are close to me. But when we pass judgment on somebody, first we have to make sure that um, well, we're not guilty of the things we're judging. That would be absolutely hypocritical of us. Second, we have to make sure that we're on solid ground, that the accusation that we're making about our brother, uh, about our brother is correct. Third, we should go to our brother privately and, and explain what we feel that he's doing wrong. It has to be measured against the Word of God. That's the only true and just measure. If our brother doesn't accept what he's doing wrong and is wrong, that then we should go get a couple of witnesses and have them explain to him what he's doing wrong and explain to him why it's wrong, praying that that person repents. If that person still doesn't get it or, or refuses to repent, at that point we have to separate ourselves from him. Now, now this is... Um, where compromise usually comes in on the part of many of us. And compromise or politics is always bad because politics, playing politics, playing favorites, compromising, bending rules for people that we've known a long time or that we have a special relationship with, those things always lead to hypocritical judgment. So we're back at the beginning of the vicious circle, right? And, and we find ourselves in a state of sin, in a state of error. So we can't compromise, and we have to measure with the same rule all the time. But we also cannot force our other brethren, friends, relatives, to see things our way. They don't always have the same information, that they might have a different decision-making process. They might be compromisers. Now, when it comes down to it, if you really want to walk the line, you're going to walk that line with a very small group of people. You might be walking that line alone. That, that's the walk in the faith is a difficult walk. So you have to be prepared for that. You have to be prepared that, that if you're telling the people the truth, that if you're forcing them to do something which they're not comfortable doing, that you're going to alienate those good people as well. So the, the thin line between 
compromise and total alienation and walking alone. That, that's the decisions that we, we all have to make in life. That's the way it is. And if we choose to do the right thing, we're not going to have a whole lot of company. That's just the way it is. But we have to set the example. We have to be the, the shining people on, on the hill. And, and when you can demonstrate that somebody is doing something and doing it wrong and you have witnesses, you really do have to separate from those people no matter how unpopular a decision that, that you have to make because you should seek to please God. That's the bottom line. We should all, as individuals, not seek to please each other. We should all seek to please God. And yes, we all have faults and we all sin. And if our brother loves us, our brother will correct us. And if we love our brother, we will accept his correction. Now, there's differences of opinion and there's violations of the word of God. Well, we're all going to have differences of opinion in one way or another. But sin is sin, and if you correct a brother... And, and he refuses to uh, accept our correction and, and the correction of witnesses. And all correction should be done in, in love for that brother. But if he refuses to accept us, well, we're told that we have to separate ourselves from him. That would hopefully make him think, and, and, and he would come around, and, and we would pray that he does that. that that's... Um, Enough said on that topic. I had to say that. It, it's, um, it, it was just important that I do. And, and hopefully we all understand. 2C line, part 18, the non-white races in the Bible, part 2. Last week, we discussed three seemingly disparate topics and made assertions that those topics do indeed relate to one another. They were fallen angels, satyrs, and the savage peoples who lived in proximity to the Middle East, the Levant. We explained how the fallen angels of Scripture had, according to the Enoch literature, mixed their seed with the beasts of creation and were therefore now bound in chains of darkness. The children of Israel, in their apostasy, were, according to the Apostle Paul, worshipping fallen angels or the departed spirits of the demons which were their bastard offspring. The Hebrew word for demons was sometimes translated as devils in the King James Version. The children of Israel, in their apostasy, were also worshipping satyrs. The Hebrew word for satyrs was also in several places in Scripture translated as devils. If those words were all translated correctly, or, or at least to make the distinction between them, because they are definitely two separate entities, perhaps there would be less confusion uh, over what a devil is. The satyrs of antiquity were later depicted as creatures half man and half goat. It must be stated that there are also places in Scripture where the word is certainly referring to a literal goat, to a he-goat, 
Genesis 37, verse 31, where the coat of Joseph was made from the hair of a he-goat, is one of those places. And there are other places in, in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and elsewhere. This is because, as we explained last week, the word originally means rough, and therefore of creatures that is simply hairy. This word was also the word used to describe Esau upon his birth, that he was hairy. However, we also showed that originally, those satyrs, which were considered a threat to man, were thought to be tailless apes originally. That is the manner in which the Septuagint translators also treated the word as it appears in certain places in the prophecy of Isaiah. And it is how the later Roman natural historian Pliny interpreted the term in his own descriptions of satyrs, that they were tailless apes. Clifton M. Heiser's paper, Identifying the Beast of the Field Part 3, also documents that in the related Arabic language, the word corresponding to satyr refers to an ape. While the Arabs themselves are indeed bastards, their language is nonetheless akin to Hebrew and the related Aramaic language, so we can learn certain things from it. We then used historical descriptions of Negroes last week from Strabo and from Diodorus Siculus to illustrate that if satyrs were originally tailless apes roaming the wilderness and the margins of ancient society, which they were, the Negroes, who were known to the ancients, certainly fit that description of tailless apes both physically and behaviorally. The satyrs of sacrifice in Leviticus, they were acceptable to God. They were he-goats, considered among the ritually clean and edible beasts, and therefore they were a part of his creation. But the satyrs which the children of Israel were worshipping, that they made idols to, those satyrs were likened to demons and to the angels. They were not a part of God's creation, but rather they were a corruption of God's creation. If one wonders how the ancient children of Israel may have been worshipping satyrs or tailless apes or negroes, one only has to visit the nearest sports bar today. Those sports bars do indeed emulate at least one facet of the purpose of the ancient Baal temples. And today the children of Israel are worshipping satyrs in every sports bar and most living rooms across the country. Borrowing a paradigm from Clifton Amaheiser's paper Identifying the Beast of the Field, Part 1, let us consider the notion that everything in the creation of God is good. Genesis 1-4, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Genesis 1-10, and God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.12. 
and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind. And the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself. We'll get to that when we cover one John in our Paul translation, in our Paul exhibition next week. Whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1, 17 and 18. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.25. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. That's the, the, the key to creation, kind after kind. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that if our seed is in us, a reference to this phrase, that if its seed is in itself, as God created it, then it's good, and God will not impute sin to us. We'll discuss that in the next two weeks as we present Romans chapters 4 and 5. Genesis 1.31, Genesis I'm sorry, finally. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Everything that Yahweh God created was good. None of it was bad. There's nothing in the creation account of God creating anything bad. Yes, in the parable of the net, in Matthew chapter 13, we have this, the words of Christ. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. How did bad stuff get in the sea if everything God created was good? So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The kind of every kind in Matthew thirteen forty seven is the Greek word genos, the word for race. The word for race in Greek was often used more narrowly than our modern English understanding. In Greek... Genos may refer to nations of a particular tribe, or in certain contexts, it may only refer to the families of a particular nation, the extended families that make up a nation. Each one of them could be a genos of its own within the nation. 
It doesn't mean that their kind is different than the other people in the nation, but that they are what we would call a strain, a peculiar family within that, na within that nation. That's the way the Greeks use the term. So the phrases in Matthew 13, 47, for good and bad, are both plural in this passage. The good kind is preserved, and the bad are cast away. By any means, the good and the bad are races. We'll talk about this at length next week when we talk about the parable of the sheep and the goats. And they are not individuals within any particular race. The good and the bad are kinds. They're races. They're types. Therefore, in this parable, Christ is asserting that there are bad races. But if everything that Yahweh God created was good, from where did bad races come? And if in Genesis, God took explicit credit for creating the Adamic race, and as we can demonstrate biblically and historically, all Adamic peoples are white, then from where did non-white races come from. In our last presentation of the series, we gave some examples of the phrases for cattle and beasts of the field, which are found in Genesis chapter 1, and demonstrated that these phrases are often used of four-footed and other animals. Clifton provides even more examples of scriptures which demonstrate that in his six-part series of papers called Identifying the Beast of the Field. I only need a couple of examples to make my point. In the later prophetic literature, those terms are sometimes used as pejoratives for people. They're even at times used as pejoratives for the children of Israel. Now, if I could show you one instance where the phrase beast of the field refers to the children of Israel, then by no means can you insist that it refers to non-white races. It certainly does not. Sometimes it's used as a pejorative for non-white races, but it's not a technical term referring to non-white races. It's only a technical term referring to four-footed creatures and the lower life forms, the animals of the earth, which were created in Genesis chapters, chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. In Joel chapter 2, Yahweh is addressing the children of Israel. He's not addressing anybody else. And he says, But I will remove far off from you, meaning the children of Israel, the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up because he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beneath her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God. You, you know, if Israel are sheep, 
if Joseph is is a uh, is a bull, if the horns of Joseph pushes people to the ends of earth, if Judah is a lion, if Naphtali is a stag, all of these depictions are in Scripture. If Dan is a serpent in a way, if the Hebrew language uses parallelisms, what where in prophetic language or even in the, the gospel in Paul's epistles sometimes, the same entity is described two times consecutively using a different phrase to describe the entity, but both phrases apply to the same entity, right? That's a parallelism. We have that here in Joel, the children of Israel, the sheep, the lion, the stag, the bull, the serpent, the children of Israel are being labeled as beasts of the field, and Joel 2.22 is a parallelism with Joel 2.23. God's not telling the little critters to don't be afraid. He's using the term beasts of the field to describe the children of Israel in a poetic sort of way. But in this manner, it's a pejorative. It's a good pejorative here because it's the children of Israel being addressed and they're the sheep, the flock of his pasture. He's not addressing anybody else here. He sure as hell isn't addressing niggers. The phrase beast of the field refers to animals in the creation. Later on in the prophets, it's used as a pejorative. Sometimes of non-Adamic people who have no other name in Scripture, unless it's other pejoratives, sometimes even of Adamic people, just like all those terms which we see as more positive pejoratives, like sheep, just as they're used of the children of Israel. The only viable scriptural explanation for the origin of the non-Adamic so-called other races is the recognition that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which the serpent offered Eve and which was already in the midst of the garden when Adam was placed there represents the fallen angels described in Revelation chapter 12 as the Bible tells us explicitly connecting the Satan of Revelation 12 with the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, the creation of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not recorded in Genesis chapter 1, but it is revealed in Revelation chapter 12 and to a lesser extent in Luke chapter 10. Christ came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world, as he himself tells us in Matthew 13.35. These fallen angels, we're told, as the Enoch literature attests, mixed their seed with every kind and pursued different flesh, as the Apostle Judah attests. And therefore we have the origin of the bad kinds of races. There's no other explanation. As Christ himself identified them in the parable of the net. Neither is it revealed at what time or in what epoch this corruption of the so-called fallen angels could have happened. The actual archaeological record is not wrong so far as the things which have been dug out of the ground and a limited understanding of their great antiquity. However, those things certainly are misinterpreted 
And in this modern world, men have been compelled to mold interpretations of their Bibles into what is commonly called science. Instead, men should be interpreting science according to the Word of God, according to their Bibles. The primary difficulty in doing that is political correctness. Boom. Big stumbling block there. Discounting the modern scientific confusion of apes for people, they do that all the time. They call, dig these damned apes out of the ground and say, oh, that's our ancestor. No, Lucy, Lucy is an ape. Lucy is not your ancestor. Lucy might be some Jew's ancestor. Lucy might be some Negro's ancestor. But Lucy sure as hell isn't the white man's ancestor. Discounting the modern scientific confusion of apes for people. The oldest races discovered in anthropology are not necessarily the most primitive. However, since modern anthropologists often fancifully extrapolate entire species from a few bones, bone fragments, we've seen them do that, do that. There's clear evidence they've done that. And they, they extrapolate entire civilizations from a few pieces of flint. Because they do that, Cutting through the smoke to get to the actual substance of their discoveries is very often a tedious behavior. The days of Genesis being epochs or ages, the corruption of the fallen angels, which the apostles certainly esteemed as true, quoting those portions of Enoch that discuss it. The corruption of the fallen angels may have happened hundreds of thousands of years before the creation of Adam. Doesn't matter. Neither did it necessarily happen all at once, but may have itself transpired over many millennia. We're not told. It doesn't matter. Scripture does not detail these things. And we must be careful of our own assumptions when we try to interpret the little that Scripture does relate in this matter. The only viable scriptural explanation for the fate of the other so-called races in eschatology, as we will learn next week, is also manifest in the same recognition that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents their origin. That they are corruptions of God's creation. They are not portions of God's creation. That's why there are bad kinds, bad races in the kingdom of heaven, according to Yahshua Christ. And for that reason... They are not mentioned explicitly in the creation account. And for that reason, they are all going to be destroyed by Yahweh our God at his advent with the fall of Babylon and the wedding feast of the Lamb, as those events are certainly presaged or presaged in Revelation chapters 
17 through 19. <laughs> and many other prophecies also, Obadiah 15 and 16, several places in Jeremiah, in the Psalms, in Joel. We'll discuss those passages next week. All of the end times prophecies account for only two groups of so-called people, good fish and bad fish, sheep and goats, wheat and tares, or sons and bastards. Why? Because at the beginning, back there in the garden, there were two groups of people. There was the race of Adam, the tree of life. As Christ attests, I am the vine, you are the branches. And there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were two groups at the beginning. Wherever we look at prophecies concerning the end, there are two groups. There ain't no third, fourth, fifth groups. There's two groups. You're a sheep or you're a goat. And all the goats go on the left and all the sheep go on the right. Imagine that. That's how easy it really is. One group is always preserved, the children of Israel. All others are in the other group, and they're always destroyed. The bad fish, the goats, the tares, the bastards. Prophecy is absolutely consistent in this regard. We shall indeed discuss these things at length next week. Ostensibly, they are destroyed because they were created by the world in sin. And God did not create them. And that is why they are not mentioned as being in his creation in Genesis. That's why the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 4, contrasts the people of God born from above and the people of the world born in sin. You're born of God or you're born of the world. When combined, the beginnings and the ends of the scriptures prove that this assertion is true. In my experience, only the bastards are found to be in disagreement. Well, of course they are. It is they who the scripture depicts them saying, we have one father, even God. However, the prophet Malachi and the word of Christ himself in John chapter 8 would certainly differ. The Bible teaches that strange gods have children here. The fallen angels and the demons which sprung from them, they have children here, collectively known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which the seed of the serpent is a branch. Let us revisit those scriptures in Isaiah where the word Seder appears in the King James Version of the Bible, where it was transliterated from Hebrew rather than being translated from Isaiah chapter 13. 
speaking of ancient Babylon. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and the owl shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant places, and her time is near to come and her day shall not be prolonged. Likewise, Isaiah chapter 34 is a prophecy against all the nations which spoiled Jerusalem in the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Of course, all of those empires recruited people from all the nations of their empire to join their armies. We saw that in the, um, in the Assyrian inscriptions that we covered when we presented the prophet Amos last year. Isaiah chapter 34 is a prophecy against all the nations which spoiled Jerusalem, but it is also fully apparent that it is a dual prophecy related to Revelation chapters 18 and 19. When the Babylonians invaded and destroyed ancient Jerusalem, nearly all the other surrounding nations were their allies. Tyre was actually not allied, but Tyre was also destroyed, the mainland city, by the Babylonians. We shall cite parts of that chapter here, Isaiah 34. Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein the world, and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of Yahweh is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. And heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down. As the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. We shouldn't always take that, that, those words for heaven literally. And I'll discuss that in a, in a future installment of this program. With proof from ancient inscriptions. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Now the Edomians had torn down Solomon's temple when, when the Babylonians leveled Jerusalem, and they took delight in it. That's in Psalm 137, and in 1 Esdras chapter 4. For it is Yahweh's day of vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night nor day, 
the smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it. The owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all her princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up at her places, in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof. And it shall be a habitation of dragons and a court for owls. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow, the screech owl, which is the Lilith demon, the female demon, the screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. These prophecies in Isaiah, while not completely descriptive of the coming fall of Mystery Babylon as it is described in the Revelation, however, are certainly a type for the fall of Mystery Babylon. The fall of Ancient Babylon is certainly a type for the fall of Mystery Babylon because history indeed repeats itself and therefore the descriptions are are, in some great degree, very relevant. But by necessity, the context is a little different. However, if we are told that the judgment of Yahweh would be upon all of these nations which were gathered against ancient Israel, and that they would be destroyed over the controversy of Yahweh's people, of Zion, and that they would then be inhabited by the cormorant and the bittern, the owl and the raven, and the thorns shall come up in the palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof. And that it shall be a habitation of dragons and a court for owls, and the wild beasts of the desert and the wild beasts of the island and the satyr and the lilith demon and the great owl and the vultures then who or what is inhabiting these nations today? This is very similar prophecy of Assyria and the punishment to be laid upon Assyria by Yahweh in Zephaniah chapter 2, from verse 13. And he will stretch out his hands against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her, all the beasts of the nations, the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows, desolation, desolation shall be in the thresholds, for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in, 
Everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Nineveh was destroyed in 612 B.C. However, the area was never entirely uninhabited. And the population once again grew with the Arab conquests. Today, the Iraqi city of Mosul encompasses the entire ancient city of Nineveh. Wraps right around it. Check it out on Google. Of all these nations of the old world, of the Levant and Mesopotamia, many of which were white and some of which were Canaanite, if whites, and, and Canaanites certainly appeared to be almost white, if whites no longer dwell there, but these other creatures, which are described to us in these prophecies, now dwell there, then who are those so-called people dwelling there? The only logical interpretation is that these Arab bastards, which are dwelling in all of these desolate places in the old world, are themselves the cormorant, the bittern, the owl, the raven, the thorns, the nettles, the brambles, the dragons, the owls, the wild beasts of the desert, the wild beasts of the islands, the satyrs, the lilith demons, the great owls, and the vultures. That's the only logical explanation, because that's who's living there now, as described by the Word of God. So it must be referring to the Arab peoples. The words of Christ and the Arab peoples that live there, they're, they're from every race. The Mongols went through there. The Turks from, from far Asia went through there. They were originally pretty much akin to the Mongols. The, the, the Arabs went through there. The Arabs are all part Negro. Every race has been through this area. They've all left their genetic imprints on this area. Every one of them. Maybe the maybe the Hawaiian, maybe you, you might find Samoans or some weird race in the jungles of South America that hasn't been through there, but they're probably related in some distant manner also. The words of Christ in the New Testament corroborate this interpretation. First, where he gives the parable of the mustard seed, and he says... The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is indeed the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Matthew 13. Now that may seem enigmatic until one sees the prophecy of the fall of mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 18 from verse 1. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory and he cried mighty with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Mystery Babylon 
of which the main component is the whore who joins herself to the beast. <coughs> Mystery Babylon represents the system of global trade, global politics, and global religion developed by what is now called world Jewry in concert with the Anglo-Saxon and related peoples, the whore. The Anglo-Saxon and related peoples were at one time the least numerous of the world's peoples. We're headed there again, right? But they eventually came to dominate the entire globe. However, because the woman who represents those people, who represents the children of Israel, had joined herself to the beast, now her cities, all her centers of trade and commerce had become inhabited or even dominated by devils and every foul spirit and every unclean and hateful bird. Things which indeed describe the Canaanite Jews and all of the world's non-Adamic races. How else does Mystery Babylon become a haven for those things? In another place, they are also called the flood which is said to have come out of the mouth of the serpent. The descriptive metaphor, every unclean and hateful bird, is rather ideal for those who descended from fallen angels. And another clearly eschatological, eschatological prophecy in Isaiah chapter 27, we read, in that day, Yahweh, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. This is talking about the day of Yahweh's wrath. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Speaking back in Isaiah chapter 27, we're envisioning the context to be that of the Adamic Oikumene. However, we cannot imagine that on the long-awaited day of his wrath that Yahweh our God will go fishing, even wailing. Rather, the crooked serpent Leviathan is representative of those enemies of God who had managed to infiltrate the sea of the people of God. These are the tares planted among the wheat in Genesis chapter 3. Leviathan, the crooked serpent, that's a collective that, that's a, a, a collective noun used of our enemies. These are the tares planted among the wheat in Genesis chapter 3. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but more directly, the seed of the serpent. The enemies which Satan purposely sowed in to God's field. Revelation chapter 12 contains a prophecy with multiple fulfillments throughout history. And the fulfillment of each of them is evident. At the last, the prophecy is culminating at the present time. In part, we read the following. I'm only going to read the parts pertinent to this discussion. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which had brought forth the man-child, 
And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. That's Israel in the deportations. Where she is nourished for time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. That's Israel receiving the gospel. When, for the most part, not perfectly, but for the most part, the Jews were ostracized from European society. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Christ. The war of the dragon against the seed of the woman is manifest even in the present time. And most identity Christians would agree that the flood which the dragon cast after the, after the woman out of its mouth are the world's non-Adamic races. Historically, this flood is evident with the Arabic with the Turkic and with the Mongol invasions of Europe. All the races invaded Europe before Europe colonized anywhere. All these invasions occurred at the instigation of the Edomite Jews. And that can be established. However, today, these same peoples are invading Europe still and legally under the cover of egalitarianism and immigration, once again at the instigation of the same Edomite Jews. However, what many identity Christians do not consider is that if the other races are the flood from the mouth of the serpent, then those races certainly were not created by Yahweh God. Rather, they are indeed a part of that same tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their origin is with the very serpents that control them, the aboriginal religions of all those people, and I'm not going to get into the details, but they also serve to demonstrate the truth of the assertion. Go check out those South African witch doctors and, 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 and the real religious aboriginal religious beliefs of the Chinese and Japanese, the things they believed before any intervention from the West. And Buddhism is basically intervention from the West. Hinduism has a lot of intervention from the West. There have been denominational Christians who attempt to defend the status of Negroes by citing Jeremiah chapter 13, where it says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Let's consider the first part of this verse. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? This is another instance of a Hebrew parallelism, a Hebrew parallelism, two consecutive phrases or sentences that both describe the same entity, the Ethiopian and the leopard. They have something in common. 
the skin of the Ethiopian, and the pelt of the leopard both consist of mixed colors. Yes, they do. We all know what leopards look like, right? I mean, it doesn't say a panther. The original children of Cush, the son of Ham, they were white and dwelt in both Mesopotamia and that part of Africa which is south of Egypt, which they actually colonized by sea. The Egyptians themselves were primarily of Mitzraim, another son of Ham. Since the Ethiopians of the East, which was how the Greeks described the people of Cush in Mesopotamia, and yes, Cush was in Mesopotamia, the empire of Nimrod was founded in Mesopotamia, Nimrod was the son of Cush. Since the Ethiopians of the East were no longer identified by that name by the Hebrews of Jeremiah's time, and since the leopard is native to Africa, we must take it for granted that the prophet refers to the Ethiopians, or Cushites, as they're properly called, of Africa. I understand that mainstream sources say that the Cushites are the Nubians, and they're wrong. The Cushites are white people originally in Ethiopia who later mixed with the Nubians. These people had been mixing with and were eventually overrun by the black Nubians of what is now Sudan. By the middle of the 8th century BC, these Nubians had invaded Egypt as well and had ruled over all or part of Egypt for nearly a hundred years. Assyrian intervention under Sennacherib defeated the Nubians and helped to prevent them from permanent and complete control. However, by that time, the blood of not all, but the blood of much of Egypt was on an irreparably downward course real quick. From Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. We're going to explain what happened to Egypt and Ethiopia, right? But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Listen to that. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou, speaking to Israel, was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee, therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Now we can conjecture why Yahweh had to do that. Because a strong white Egypt and a strong white Ethiopia were certainly a threat to the children of Israel. There's other conjectures, and that's fine. It doesn't matter. Yahweh gave up Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba 
so that he could keep the children of Israel. A hundred years after Isaiah, and after the passing of the Nubian 25th dynasty of pharaohs, Ezekiel prophesied against Egypt, which was really only what was left of Egypt, According to scripture, namely Ezekiel chapters 29 and 30, many Egyptians were taken captive by the Babylonians. Like the Judeans, they also had an opportunity to return to their homeland in the Persian period. From Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 12, Yahweh says, And I will make Egypt, I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate, meaning all the countries around her, because most of the Middle East was already condemned by Yahweh. And her cities, among the cities that are laid waste, shall be desolate forty years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations, and I will disperse them through the countries. Yet, thus saith Yahweh God, at the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from the people whither they were scattered, and this is the Babylonian invasion when this was fulfilled. And the Babylonians had taken many Egyptians captive and they were let go to return for the same reasons many of the Judeans were allowed to return because Cyrus, the king of Persia, after he conquered Babylon, let captives from all over the empire return to their homeland. And I will bring the captivity of Egypt again and will cause them to return to the land of Pathros, into the land of their habitation, and they shall be there a base kingdom. It shall be the basest of kingdoms. Neither shall it exalt itself any more above the nations, for I will diminish them, that they shall no more rule over the nations." So we see that Egypt was to ultimately be the basis of kingdoms. And any later semblance of culture in Egypt actually belonged to the Greeks under the Ptolemies, who ruled Egypt for a long time, and then the Romans, and even that was temporary. The kingdom of Moreau, to the south in Ethiopia, they held on to some vestiges of ancient civilization in Ethiopia until after the Christian era, until about the 3rd or 4th century AD, when it finally completely collapsed. So these things, these prophecies concerning Egypt and Ethiopia, they didn't happen overnight, but look at them today. They were great white civilizations. Look at them now. Yahweh gave them up for the sake of the children of Israel. If Yahweh gave up the formerly white nations of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba for the sake of Israel, who did he give them to? If black Africans mingled with, overran, and then eventually caused the permanent decline and destruction of these formerly great white nations... Did Yahweh give these nations up to his friends? Did he give them up to elements of his own creation? Or did he give them to his enemies? And if Yahweh gave these formerly white nations, if he gave them up to his enemies, 
then those enemies were not created by Yahweh. Because everything which Yahweh created was good. But these mixed-race bastards who occupy these nations today are the direct result of a curse and of Yahweh's giving them up. As Christians, we have an obligation to see those people for what they are according to the word of our God. In a prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9, another example, which was primarily against Syria, the Tyrians and the Philistines, the word of Yahweh said that a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. The Philistines were, for the most part, also descendants of Mitzrayim. Genesis chapter 10, the son of Ham, they were white Adamic people. Ashdod is one of the cities of Palestine, of the Philistines, which has been, for all practical purposes, continually inhabited since the early records of the Philistines in Scripture, just about back to the time of Abraham. But the Philistines have not lived there in many centuries. And the Arab inhabitants of the land certainly are bastards. When we see those inhabitants, those Arab inhabitants of Palestine, we have to know, and we have to admit, and we have to see them as the result of these curses against white nations, which Yahweh uttered in his word, in Zechariah's case, 2,500 years ago, maybe 26. Yes, the word Africa comes from the Hebrew word Ophir. Ophir was also settled near the Horn of Africa, as can be told from certain scriptures. But Ophir started out as white, and he sure as hell isn't white now. What's funny is the, um, the Roman word for Africa was Afer, and that's from Ophir also, of course. Africus is the genitive form of the word Afer in Greek, but the Greeks didn't have that word for Africa. That was a Hellenization of a Roman word. The, Greek, the Greeks had a word Aphros, and it meant folly. God makes our language, and he laughs at us, right? Aphros means folly in Greek. It can mean foamy, too, I believe. In Revelation chapter 9, there was a prophecy which certainly presages the Arab and then the later Turkic invasions of Europe. The first group is described as locusts, which had come out of a bottomless pit. Their king was said to have a name which meant destroyer. The second group was depicted as 200 million horsemen, whose horses had heads like lions and tails like serpents. Both of these groups were considered to be plagues upon the people of God. 
And Revelation 9.18, after the time of these two groups passes, Revelation 9.18 says that from these plagues, a third of the men had been killed. Then, after these plagues pass, the Revelation says at 9.20, and the rest of the men who had not been killed by these plagues did not even repent from the works of their hands, that they do not worship demons and idols, things of gold and things of silver and things of copper and things of stone and things of wood and things of which are able neither to see nor to hear nor to walk. The idolatry of the Byzantine Empire. And they did not repent from their murders nor from their drugs or sorceries, nor from their fornication nor from their thefts. And what Christians must wonder when reading this passage, or these passages in Revelation chapter 9, is that no mention is possibly is made, no mention is made of possibly converting these invading armies, or of civilizing them, these locusts from out of the pit. No mention is made of civilizing them by inducting them into Christianity. Whenever the so-called non-white races are referred to in Scripture, they are instruments of the enemies of God, whom sometimes God uses to chastise disobedient men. And they are always a destructive force. The other races in Scripture are always, 100% of the time, a destructive force. They are never a force for good. They are never a force for for edification, unless punishment and chastisement are edification. That is how Christians must look at all of the non-white or non-Adamic races. They are our punishment. When you look at those people in the Middle East today, when you look at those people in the Near East, those people sitting in the cesspools of Iran, those people sitting in the, in, in the garbage pile called Egypt today, those people sitting in the, in, in, in the filthy brothels of Tel Aviv, those people are the result of the curses which Yahweh God put upon the ancient white world. Read the prophets and read everything Yahweh said about Moab, Amman, Syria, the Philistines, Elam, Asher, and all the punishments, the Chaldees, and all the punishments, he said, would come down upon those people. And you look at those Arab bastards today, they're the result. And those people are an amalgamation of practically every race on the planet. They are our punishment, and they shall therefore have no part with us upon our repentance. We should look at all the formerly white regions of North Africa, the Near East and Mesopotamia, the Middle East and Anatolia, or modern Turkey, and Syria, in the same manner. What these were once... that these were once areas inhabited by whites, and the people who dwell there 
now are the descendants of those who at one time overran and destroyed those formerly white nations, which was allowed to happen because it was a punishment from God. Dragons, owls, cormorants, satyrs, liliths, that's what they are. For the same reason, for our chastisement, we today are experiencing that very same thing once again. As we're told, that mystery Babylon has become a habitation for those same creatures once again. And understanding what happened to the old world, we're blessed with the understanding of what is happening to the new world. However, in Christ, we are assured an ultimate victory. For that, we must also bear in mind that without Christ, we have no hope at all because we sure as hell aren't going to save ourselves. Therefore, when one sees an Arab or a Turk or one of the mixed-race people from the fringes of Christendom, one is looking at the result of the wrath of God for the disobedience of some ancient white nation, and that person being observed is some half-white curse upon the ancient white world. And every nigger in white society today, just like ancient Egypt, is a curse waiting to happen. That's what niggers are. They're curses waiting to happen if they already haven't caused a few. And the non-white ancestors of those individuals originated as part of the flood of the serpent, unleashed against the Adamic race as foreseen by Yahweh our God. Our God has, in his permissive will, allowed us to suffer these trials for our own ultimate edification and for his ultimate glory. However, that does not mean that we should ever embrace his enemies. Rather, we must reject them for the curses which they are for which reason we are admonished to be a separate people. In the next segment of this presentation, we shall indeed discuss this very thing at length. Next week, the non-white races and prophetic eschatology. From Exodus chapter 19, now therefore, if you will, if you will, Obey my voice, indeed, and keep my covenant. Then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. From 1 Kings, chapter 8, that thine eyes may be opened unto the supplication of thy servant and unto the supplication of thy people Israel to hearken unto them in all that they call for, the, for unto thee. These are the words of Solomon. For thou did separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance as thou spakest by the hand of Moses. 
thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Yahweh God. From 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Christogenia New Testament, do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless, those without the faith? And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living God, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. From 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That word holy means separated and dedicated to the purposes of God. A peculiar people. Same language as the Old Testament. In fact, the quote I just made from, one, from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that is from the Old Testament, for the most part, from Isaiah. A peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. The Bible is consistent in its language concerning the children of Israel, from one end of it to the other. Because of the election of God, the children of Israel were told to keep themselves distinct, even from the other white nations of the old world. Embracing the non-whites is no better or no worse than embracing the devil himself and all the enemies of Yahweh our God. Thank you for listening. I'll be here next Friday with an exhibition of Romans chapter 4. And next Saturday, the other races in eschatology. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.